thanks for joining us for the fourth episode of the How Did You Get Here podcast. Today, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Ninda Johal, District Lieutenant. He's CEO of Natural Group, who are music, events, and publishing. Absolutely fantastic guy. Ninda Johal, Satri Akalji. Oh, Satri Akal. <laughs> We've been practicing. <laughs> and of course, it was all very, very relevant during COVID. Not physical. Absolutely. Thank you for spending your time with us. I know you're really busy. Um, could you just perhaps for the, the listeners that haven't uh, heard of you, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, firstly, thank you for the invite. It's great. Two of my most uh, favourite people on the globe. <laughs> the opportunity to chat to you via this is really good. So You say um, all the right things. Uh, no, 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 no. It's, um, yeah, so um, look, we've known each other for a while, but um, and quite a few people do know about my background, but I was born in the UK. Um, so my parents had mapped out, or at least they were hoping I'd become an accountant or something like that. So, um, so I, I took the bait. I went for an accountancy role. Um, so I did my first degree in finance, decided to become an accountant, but the accountancy didn't want me. So 18 interviews later, or within about eight weeks, it was apparent accountancy profession didn't want me. So I, uh, I buzzed off to do something called the an MBA, which is a Master's in Business Administration. Now, what was good about that was that gave me a much more of a wider understanding of business rather than just a number crunching. Um, and then I, um, I took a role as a, as a consultant, management consultant. The job was, I don't know, called hatchet men, but I was, um, the team of us would go into a place, a, a plant or a business, and normally we're forearmed with all the figures that say they're hemorrhaging cash and they're losing. So normally when you're hemorrhaging cash, something has to go, and normally it's people. Mm-hmm. So it, it was good and it wasn't good, if you get my drift, because uh, people knew when we wandered into a place that our role was really probably to remove few layers. Um, but, but I had a side hustle, and the side hustle that um, was I love music, and I was playing in a band. And so I was doing my day job, nine to five, uh, hatchet man, and then I'd jump in my car and join the rest of the band somewhere in the country doing gigs. Um, I typically would be on stage about two in the morning, and then I'd be back at my hotel or whatever by about six or seven, go straight to work. As you can imagine, after a while, the eyes gave it away. <laughs> the dark circle. Uh, oh, dark circles, the red eyes gave it away. Um, and I had to make a decision, really. Do I pick my side hustle, which was music, or do I continue with my career? And uh, much to the consternation of my parents, I, uh, I went for the entrepreneurial route and went into music as, as a sort of full thing, um, set up a label. Uh, and, and my parents really struggled to explain to people what I did. Mm-hmm. Because music's pretty intangible. You can't, and, and I think uh, what they conjured up was images of, you know, Trotter? Do you remember Trotter with his yellow van? Oh, Del Boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Del Boy. So, horses, so yeah. I think that their, their, their perception of music was that, I would probably have one of them. Okay. And when I opened the booth, there'd be CDs falling out and cassettes falling out. And I'd be saying, come on, buy 10. <laughs> um, so I'd, in their eyes, I'd, I'd, from a professional, I'd become a trader. Uh-huh. And I was trading cassettes and CDs. So, um, and of course, uh, you know, people said, well, why, why the hell have you set up a record company? Well, well, what's... The thing was, when I was playing with the band, um, we were playing in front of mixed audiences. And, and I had this dream that, you know, one day, this music could cross the charts. Mm-hmm. And everybody fell about laughing. And I'll tell you why they fell about laughing, because if you ever listen to the music, it's sung in a foreign tongue, Punjabi. Uh, the instrumentation is foreign, it's Punjabi. Uh, the lyrics 
interestingly, a Punjabi. <laughs> so, so people say, well, nobody's going to buy that because unless you're a Punjabi, in other words, that's a dialect of Northwest India, uh, nobody's going to buy it. But I was convinced the music was was really dancey, it was fresh, mm-hmm. it was innovative. So I set up on this impossible dream of trying to get this music, which hitherto only Punjabis were buying, nobody did. Um, Twelve years, I was trotting around the world armed with my rucksack full of those days CDs. <clears throat> and I remember traveling to Paris and all over the place trying to meet Universal, Warner, Sony and people like that. I said, look, take this music on. I said, no chance. Don't understand what he's saying. Can't understand the instrumentation. Nobody in the marketplace will buy it. Anyways, this went on for 12 years, went on for 12 years. And, um, and then eventually I got a, I got a break. Um, and this is where resilience comes in. You, you know, you're just going to keep at it. You've just got to keep dreaming that it might come true. And some, some little unknown label in Italy said, um, I'll tell you what, it sounds okay. We'll take it on. We're not going to give you any money. We'll give you royalties. I said, fine. Um, now, it, it, life's about breaks. Life's about being in the right place sometimes. I happen to meet them, but of course, I could argue I made that opportunity by not sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring, but by going out. 12 years of hard, hard grind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, 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 and the second thing I would say, network like crazy. Mm-hmm. Network like crazy. The more people you meet, the greater the opportunities that will present yourself to them. So resilience is important. Networking is important. And a sense of positivity is important, even when you're in dark moments. Um, so anyway, I was, I was compelled to go for this thing. So the Italian, the Italians signed it up. And then I met somebody in Germany. He said, oh, I hear you gave the music to the Italians. I said, yeah. He said, we'll try it in Turkey. I said, okay, same story, no money, but we'll give you royalties. Go for it. Um, it's my like second lucky break was um, the DJs in Istanbul loved the tunes. And they started to cause havoc in the nightclubs. Um, and of course, part of the problem I had was the mainstream music, it sounded ethnic, so they said it belongs in world music. The people in world music said it's far too dancey, it belongs in dance music. So I had an <laughs> issue with just getting it into the shops because they didn't know where to put it. But anyway, so back to, back to, the, um, back to the Turks. So here's my break. The Turks have a close affiliation with Germany. So the DJs took the music to Germany and started to play it in the nightclubs there. And I remember it was one summer I was walking, walking and my phone rang and a German accent came on and he said, uh, is this natural records? I said, it is. He said, um, we just heard this track. We don't understand it. Don't understand the lyrics. <laughs> don't understand the instrumentation. But people are loving it. We'd like to now release it in Europe. Uh, but actually, we'd like to release it in the world. And I played hardball. I said, no, 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 no. It's far too important to give you to the world. Well, what a great deal. Uh, and that was universal music. Um, cut a long story short. Um, I was walking on Oxford Circus, heard the tune, turned around expecting it to be Asians. But actually, it was four white young people dancing to it. Uh, we then signed a deal with Sony in the UK. We were suddenly on Radio 1, rotation, and I went back to this exhibition where people used to laugh, here he comes armed with this stuff, you know. He looks as though he's from India, but he speaks with a strange British accent. <laughs> Quick, hide, here he comes with that stuff that nobody understands. Uh, as I left, left these shores to go there, um, I had a good idea, and they said, we think we're going top ten. We think, um, well, no, I mean, top ten is... So I landed in France, went to meet him, and that's the trade body, 
where the films happen and all this stuff. And, and the charts, and the charts were on a Sunday, and the charts started straight at number 10, I can't remember who it was, number 9, I can't remember, number 8, number 7, number 6, I thought, oh, we didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't go top 10. And they said, number 5, straight in, Punjabi MC, Mundial Tabachke, we had crossed into the mainstream charts after 12 years. Um, then, of course, we had nine number ones. We rocked, knocked off Ronan Keating in, uh, in Italy. Jay-Z heard the tune, remember Jay-Z, and he said, I love the tune, would like to feature on it. We knew that to break America, you needed somebody like that. He came onto the tune, uh, did an okay job, long story, um, but we broke the American charts. And the latest figure I heard is we sold, I think, 11 million copies. It's incredible. <laughs> 11 million copies. But it all started, yeah, in the West Midlands with a bit of a prayer, a yeah. bit of a dream. And, and you know when people say, um, you know, you're not allowed to dream, you are allowed to dream. Go for that dream. And if you go for it fully, go for it really fully, you can achieve what some people would argue is the impossible. And that was my first entrepreneurial journey. And I, and I think people say, well, where do you get the entrepreneurial bug from? So I grew up in a, in a family that where my dad went, worked in a foundry, and my mother worked in a factory and rally bikes assembly. So I, I wasn't surrounded by business people. And I think when I took on the band, if you recall, um, I took on that leadership role within the band. So I was negotiating, that's my side hustle, I was negotiating with, all, uh, with promoters, this price, that price. And I suddenly realized that was something I was enjoying. So I, just by sort of fate, took on that role. So I was both a musician, but also the manager. But I realized while the music was great, um, I did thrive in a, in a sort of business environment. Uh, and that's when I got the entrepreneurial bug really and we were chasing bookings, getting bookings done. We met some shady promoters en route. And, there's uh, a few of those around. There's a few of those around, particularly in the music industry. So, so that was my foray mm -hmm. into entrepreneurship and business, which was the music industry. And um, it's a huge learning curve. We played with people like Fatboy Slim. Actually, he was really good. Tom Jones is good. Really? Tom Jones is good. And my claim to fame is, I remember the promoter rang us up and said, uh, you're playing with Tom Jones, is it fine? He said, but... Uh, he's got to go early, so can you go on last? That's 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 the private story. The public story is Tom Jones supported us because we were the headline act. Of course, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. <laughs> we were the headline act, which Tom Jones came on before us and, I, and went, anyway, yeah. that's our claim to Marketing film. is very important. Yeah, and of course, <laughs> Fatboy Slim, and probably the most violent set we've ever seen was Prodigy. We played with Prodigy in Switzerland, Fantastic. I think it was. So it was good. It was all good stuff. Yeah. And uh, But a lot of people don't know that background because no. they see me as publishing and the events but uh, that's what led me is it important to you to always have a side hustle i think i think in the early days when i was working the side hustle um, gave me a chance to test it so so i think i think one of the things i would say to entrepreneurs is you know having a passion is great enjoying what you're doing is great but make sure there's a demand for it and that's where you test it and because I was playing with the band in addition to the job, not only did it give me a sense of where I wanted to go, but I was testing it. Mm -hmm. And really, I didn't realize, but I was testing and I was seeing that this thing does work and people do enjoy it. So I think testing does come in. 
And of course, testing continues, doesn't matter where you are on your business life cycle, but you're always going to bring out new products and you always have to test them. So then I think, and here's your answer to your question, I think once you're on now, you've got to stay committed to that. And I don't think then you should be looking at B, C, D and E, because I think when you look at B, C, D and E, you're going to take the focus of your A route. And I think when you go A, you've just got to go fully in. The side hustle comes in for testing. Mm -hmm. But I think if you start to do too many things, you're probably going to fail at all of them. So I think focus is key, very important, once you've done your testing. And that's where I think the testing comes in. And the side hustle. Couldn't agree more. And I think um, one of the challenges that people have is knowing where that line is between, uh, you know, focus A, which is clearly the, the best route and having these having a look at what's going on in the market around etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think that's really important it's knowing when to stop and it's knowing when to start as well which is yeah, yeah i think and, and that comes to judgment and that comes mm. to experience and that comes to talking to people and saying what do you think never feel um, that you shouldn't ask someone um, i think having a support structure is great now my wife's been brilliant um, i still remember uh, in my 11th, 10th, 11th year, I, I would always land at whichever airport and I'd get into the hotel and I'd ring home and say, by the way, I've landed. <clears throat> I remember she saying in the 11th year, I think you ought to give this a miss now. <laughs> I don't, I, th I think this this global track you're looking for is not going to happen. It just, you know, you know, you've given it a bash. But, and of course we did it that year. Mm -hmm. But the fact that she allowed me those 10, 11 years to go on this route and this impossible dream I think is important. So I think support structure does matter. Um, some people can do it without it, but I think for some people it's good to have that behind you. So just touching on something you were talking about while we were talking about your musical journey, mm. you said um, you talked about dark moments. Mm. Do you mind sharing with us when, no, when and what you, those dark moments were? I can tell you a killer dark moment. Um, so uh, it's this fateful day where a distributor, I think it was Singapore, Canada, and then a, one in East London all went bust on the same day. Wow. Yeah, and, um, and my cash flow looked very dicey. Um, and my bank manager said, um, listen, anything you try and now write a check, we're gonna bounce it, because you're gonna have to sort yourself out here. Um, so, and I'll tell you a couple of things which I should have done and I didn't do. Um, so then I thought, this is looking a bit dodgy. Um, and then it was about, half nine and my son was two at the time and Rinda said to me my wife said um, go and get a blockbuster video remember blockbusters they used to be around um, so for those who don't know blockbusters it was, it was, it was a chain of video shops and you could go and hire videos and most people's Friday and, and physical <laughs> Netflix and so, so I remember it was about 10 to 10 to 10 quarters to 10 I went to a cash machine put my card in and by the way I only wanted a pound because they only used to cost a pound and swallowed my card I thought God this is, this is bad. This is bad. So remember the call in the morning. Um, so what am I going to do here now? Mistake. Mistake was I didn't involve Narendra in what was going on. So now it suddenly dawned on me that she didn't know what was going on. Uh, so I got to Blockbuster and conjuring up all kinds of ideas and how I could convince the person behind, you know, to give me a, give me a DVD or whatever it was. It was a DVD. Uh, they were shot. <laughs> so, so I go, oh my God, I said, double shot. But, but my learning was that, and my second learning was that, we call it stress testing, is I hadn't stress test my business that if everything goes wrong, do I have something in reserve to help me out? Because I never thought that would ever happen. 
And so stress testing, I hadn't stressed it. And now suddenly I was in that problem. Third piece of advice is um, when you're in a crisis like that, think of solution. There's no point now sitting there crying about what's happened. Think about solution. So at that point, I knew I had to find a solution. Um, so I... Uh, Telephone boxes, by the way, used to exist. And that's when before, and my mobile, but you can imagine there was no, no money left to pay. Um, so I went to the, I went to the, um, phone, dialed it in, ding, 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 put your money in. And it said, uh, HSBC. And I said, put me through three, three levels up from my local manager. Got into the phone. He said, yes. I said, my name's Ninda Joha. He said, yes, I know. Obviously, I must have this red list in front of them. <laughs> and I said, look, I need to see you. I need to see you now. And he said, okay, I'll see you this afternoon. Now, Fourth piece of advice, prepare for a meeting like that. Think of what the other person is going to be asking mm-hmm. and prepare. Don't go on a wing and a prayer. So I quickly used those three hours. Lucky my MBA helped me. I drew up a number of scenarios, solutions. I went in prepared. And he said, so what do you need? Remember, he's asking now. So I've already prepared. I said, um, this is my overdraft. I need to double it. You could see the perspiration. Double it. I said, double it. But here's my plan that if you support me, this is how I can get out. So I came in with a solution base rather than... Then he paused and, and I said, right, but I need to know one way or the other. You're either going to hang me, at least I know where I stand, or you're going to support me. Now, here's an interesting thing about people. And I said, by the way, you've got my house anyway. And he said, interestingly, I don't want your house. He said, because if I take the house off you, one, you're on the street. Secondly, we're probably only going to get a third of the price on the house. So really, that's our last option. Uh, so, you know, don't make presumptions I did there. Now, he read the stuff, and luckily, education does matter, by the way, because that education allowed me to have a solution-based. Was able to, I was able to articulate what that looked like, and I was able to put it in a spreadsheet and stuff. So education helps, because it allows you to articulate. Um, thankfully, he paused for a second. He said, you've got it. I'll give you your money. That allowed me then the three months to trade out. And then, of course, we had the global hit. Now, that meeting, had it gone the other way, I might have never experienced. So there's all these learning things you've got to think about. And, of course, as we grow up, nobody teaches us this. We just plunder on through life. So I think education is important. Mixing with the right people is important. Mixing with people that are better than you is important because they'll give you advice you've not, not thought of. And as many wide people as you can, because you can have an array of solutions, somebody might come up with something. And I think finally is um, mix with people. And we say this all the time, mix with people that look different to you, mix with people that dress differently to you, and mix with people that speak differently to you, because you're going you're gonna to pick up, you're going to pick up stuff that they're thinking that you've never thought of. Very true. Diversity, inclusivity, it's, yeah. it's key these it's days, key. isn't it? And it's, it's, it's something that historically we've probably not focused on as much as we should. And it, it, I couldn't agree more with that. So I read an article about you not long ago. Oh, dear. And um, it was titled Accountant to Bangra Star. <laughs> so my question to you based on reading that article is what are you now? What am I now? Yeah. Oh, I think my wife would say a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, I'm sure probably, <laughs> probably, and 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 my uh, 
But, but my son kept calling me a party planner for a while. He thought, why, oh, you've done two degrees. You've got a master's degree. And I said, well, this is not really a party as such. It's, you know. Um, I suppose what I am now is, and, and I think most entrepreneurs do move depending on the opportunity. Um, so I suppose I'm, it's a good question. Uh, I've never regarded myself as an entrepreneur. I've never regarded myself as a business person. Not really. I've just got on with it. And, and I suppose I... I I'd like to be thought of someone, if you want to connect with someone or talk to someone, I'll connect you up. Um, and I'm really here, and that's part of the reason I joined some various boards, was I'm here to put something back into the community. And, and somebody said, well, why, why did you all do, do some of these free roles? Well, I can still remember um, my, my father had an accident uh, in the foundries when health and safety wasn't great. And I remember he spent, oh gosh, it must have been about 10, 12 years in and out of hospital. And I remember thinking, crikey, the NHS, if it wasn't for them, my, my father wouldn't have, you know, got this done. And of course, I remember my own education, which was free. My kids' education is free. So we owe this country a lot. And I think if an opportunity presents itself to give something back to the country that's given you so much, I grabbed it. And that's why I spent nine years on the left board. Mm -hmm. um, I'm now the chair of the Wolverhampton Towns Fund. So we want to make sure Wolverhampton City gets what they need out of it. I sit on the University of Wolverhampton board. We'll make sure skills is important. Um, I was chaired of the charity Steps to Work. This is helping people into employment. Um, because not everybody has the same opportunity or the same education to do it. So if we can help people do that, then then we can help them. And, and I was on the Trust Foundation, which is part of the West Bromwich Albion, helping disabled kids. Because again, not everybody has the fortune to be able to do what we all take for granted. And, and I think, you know, people aren't going to measure you by what your balance sheet looks like. They're going to measure you by what you've done for people around you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. Absolutely. So, so I don't think that's answered your question. I think that was a really good oh. answer. <laughs> the, the other thing to note is you can't take it with you as well. No. Uh, but what you can leave is a legacy. And it's really, really important to help others uh, as, as much as we can. So I'm glad we've taken it down this route. So... I'd like to talk to you about your district lieutenancy. So um, that is a, a really important role for our region. So perhaps you could just tell um, our listeners a little bit about what that means um, and, and what that means for you as well. Okay, so the deputy lieutenancy role is um, working on behalf of the Lord Lieutenant who represents the Queen. So our role is, is, is with the connection between the royal family and the community. And our role is, one, to encourage that dialogue. And, and secondly, is to identify, where possible, those who are going above what most people do. So in terms of awards, and I'm talking about um, what you heard about the MBEs and OBs. And, and, and why is that important? Because I think for two reasons. One, as a region, I'm talking about the West Midlands, we represent 4% of the population, but actually we only get 2% of... Uh, of the awards, so okay. I think so. There's a bit of a correction needed. I think the West Midlands is guilty of one thing, which is that we don't like to shout about how good we are. We're trying to correct that. Uh, other parts of the country and the world are very good at shouting about what they are. Um, and, and thirdly, if if we see people doing great work in the community, doing great work as entrepreneurs, we want them to be recognised not only as a thank you to them, but actually to inspire the next generation to say. Well, actually, if we do that, we could get recognised. So it's really a, it's, it's a role which brings royalty and the community together, but equally during that through that role, you can recognise people who have made a contribution to the society, whether it's through entrepreneurship, whether it's through charity work or generally community work. 
I mean, it's such an, a huge honour to hold that position. Yeah, it was uh, when I was asked, um, I was ecstatic. Actually, I think Brenda was even more ecstatic she's, <laughs> because she's a real ardent royalist. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's great because you meet, you meet all kinds of people from all kinds of the community and, uh, it's a great way of inter, interacting with them. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic role. It was an honour when I was asked to do it and, uh, it's something I'm really happy about doing. So a quick question about that. Do you get to have a sword? Uh, yes. Oh, fantastic. Brilliant. It's, 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 <laughs> it's a lethal looking sword. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it, it was interesting because I got the, 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 the suit that goes with it, it was sort of tailored. <laughs> And then, of course, during lockdown, we didn't do anything. I thought, God, am I going to get back into this suit? And I just about squeezed in. I think the buttons were just about on their last legs. But I think we managed okay. Fantastic. So that talks a little bit about your um, love of the community mm. and how you push this region forward. Could we take it back now? Let's go right back to the start of, um, you know, your early years. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your experience with education and how you went, uh, how you got on with school and... Yeah, uh, so I'm afraid that's that's a bit boring because um, I enjoyed school. Me too. Yeah, I enjoyed school. It was good. I can remember the dinners were really good. Dinner time was really good. I, I can remember that. It was really good. Um, what was your favourite dessert at dinner? Uh, that's good. I think anything to do with chocolate's fine with me, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, and it was interesting because I was eating... <laughs> yeah, I was eating non-Asian food, if that makes sense. And, it, and that was quite a revelation in itself, even though I was born in, in the UK. And it's quite interesting when we go to events, we meet all the time. And I have anything other than a, a typical Asian food. I always say, this sounds nice and ethnic. Because it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so different. Because we're so used to eating Asian food. And of course, everywhere you go now is Asian food, so Indian food. So, yeah, it was good. Uh, yeah, so that... So that was good. And of course, what you can remember is our parents who'd spent their life in working largely labor intensive roles. Uh, and as immigrants, they, they were insisting that we had an education. So there was always that push at home to get educated. So it wasn't any different that I wouldn't. Sorry, it was, it was expected that I would go to university, which is what I did. Um, and I got sixth form so I went the typical route really and, and and if you said to me why I'd say parental uh, pressure and I think you'll find most people of my generation who were who were born to immigrants uh, would have pursued an education and it was considered to be really 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 important I think in today's game I think um, I've often said this even though I'm a governor University, I think the education system hasn't really caught up with the new world we operate in, the world of digital, the world of different learning. Uh, and I think, I think the world of education has got to catch up. I, th I think the role of vocational is important. Um, and people who want to do things rather than learn. Um, and, and classic examples, you were at my event on Friday, where my daughter learned through COVID how to play a guitar through an app on her phone. And, and, you know, and this is the way the life's changing and we learn differently. Uh, we learn in different ways. Uh, we learn at different times. Um, and life is such that with social media, you know, you want to be able to do what you want when you want. And that applies to education now as well. You can't pigeonhole. And, and I think one of the challenges education has is that, you know, on, say, typically a three-year degree, within three years, probably everything they've learned is out of date. So what did they do then? And, and, and some would argue that maybe what we should be doing is learning in bits. So you could learn for three years, but maybe learn over six years in bits, if that makes sense. You do a year, go into work, then do maybe six months, 
online. Then, because what you're doing that way is you're keeping up with what's going on. Yeah. That way, it's staying relevant. So I think I think the whole education system needs to be turned upside down because uh, I don't think it's changed. And and government government per se hasn't been able to keep up with technology. And that's globally. You know, their laws are out of date. They don't know what to do when social media, something goes wrong. They're running around panicking. So I think government needs to catch up with technology and technology is way, way ahead. Um, and I think bureaucracy, civil servants and government need to catch up. And part of that is education. Um, and sometimes I do worry that the syllabus is wrong. Um, it doesn't, doesn't tick if you learn something that's outside the system. It doesn't allow it to be recognised if you've got work experience outside the system. Um, and so teachers and education system work to a, a rigid formula, which have ticks at the end of it. Um, I think that needs to change. We need all-rounded individuals who are emotionally intelligent as well as intellectually intelligent. I talked about IQ versus EQ. Of course, yeah. Um, because I think, I, think, I, I think an economy that has an emphasis on, on soft skills that has a, an ability to innovate and to invent, um, I think they're the ones who are going to be the game changers. And if we're going to compete with the East and the rest of the globe, then we need to, we need to, we need to produce the next level of innovative, creative thinking individuals who are not just used to doing ticking boxes. And that's a challenge. And, uh, and I've talked about innovation, creative thinking quite a few times. So I think, yeah, the education system does need a shake-up. And, and I think the world has changed. That's really interesting. You, you just mentioned the difference between IQ and EQ there. Um, could you perhaps just very briefly touch on, for our listeners, what that means? So, so IQ is based on intellect, and in itself is quite a, you know, how do you measure intellect? Uh, and emotional intelligence is the softer skill. In other words, something that sometimes is equally quite difficult to measure. But, so just to give you a practical example, if I'm, if I'm an employer, traditionally I would wait for the CV to arrive, I will check the number of qualifications and then decide thereon whether to take someone on or not. So that's a, an IQ-based assessment, and maybe that will take you into the interview. What might be happening is that actually within those set of skills, or set of qualifications, not skills, qualifications, you might have somebody who hasn't achieved well qualification-wise, simply because perhaps it's just not part of their temperament but actually have superb communication skills. And actually, you're discarding them because you're measuring them through IQ, in other words, qualifications, versus EQ, which is the softer skills. And really, my, my plea to employers is, um, yeah, you can use that as a sort of basis to start off with, but make sure you drill in into the soft skills because they're the bits that are going to make the world tick. So I would say to my, uh, my children is, yeah, your degrees are fine, it's, but what, it's what you do with them that counts. And, and many people say three, five years later, I'm, I'm trying to think now, crikey, how much of I can remember of my degree? <laughs> and I remember a friend of mine, he, he said I, he had a degree in electronic engineering and he got lambasted by his parents because he couldn't repair the TV. <laughs> and they couldn't understand how, if he'd been to university for three years and he got a degree in electronic engineering, why can't you fix the TV? And, and it's that kind of, what's the point of that? And, um, and often other people will tell you outside the typical subjects that by the time, five, ten years later, they cannot remember a single lecture. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think what's really interesting is you've touched on a few, well, 
incredibly interesting points there, just talking about the way that um, learning progresses. Um, but what I'd like to, do, quick question, did you enjoy your um, time through school and college and, and then into uni? Yeah, um, yeah, it was, well, yeah, I enjoyed it's an interesting word. I, I, I enjoyed studying, I must admit, um, and one of the reasons I moved into publishing was because I enjoyed reading. And uh, so, so I, got, I got that obviously academic bent on me. I wouldn't say I'm academically bright, but I've got an academic bent. And I think it was, honestly, I think it was, I just had to do it because it'd been drilled onto me from a young age, you've got to get education. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure, um, enjoyment, yeah, I, I did enjoy the subjects. I did enjoy the subjects. Um, and uh, I, I think when I came back to Aston to do my MBA, that was probably the most fulfilling because I had a, I had a wide range of subjects. Mm -hmm. But equally here, um, you know, when I did the MBA, nobody told me about how leadership might change and how from a leadership driven by profit and, profit and loss and balance sheet actually is no longer applicable in today's game. In today's, today's landscape, it's, it's all about emotional intelligence, persuading, influencing the people who work for you to follow the path you want them to go. And you can't really use the balance sheet and profit and loss account as a, as a beater. Absolutely. And it, it's worth mentioning that some of the world's greatest CEOs and the greatest leaders actually don't have that many qualifications. Some of those biggest leaders in the world are um, very heavy on EQ. And that is a really modern skill set to have, isn't it? And it I think we'll see the, the prevalence of that over the coming years. Yeah, I, th I think the other observation I would make uh, about the education system is that whilst it's right to concentrate on what we call the STEM subjects, which is science and maths and English, um, I do see a regression in the sense that they don't pursue the arts. And so just picking that comment up, um, I think the ability to play a musical instrument, I think is great because it changes the psyche of the way you think. Uh, and, and it's an interesting stat. Um, you tend to think that people who can play music probably can't do detailed work. Um, the latest stats show that the most qualified surgeons generally are very accomplished musicians. That's incredible. And they're very good at that kind of stuff. So I think having a artistic, use the word carefully, bent, having artistic knowledge and to be able to play instruments, I think is key to the development of creativity. But you're a perfect example of that as well, actually. You have the, the left and right brain working in harmony, which is a good skill. Well, I'm glad you said I've got a brain. <laughs> it's confirmed I don't, here I don't, today, I don't, I don't know if it's left or right, but there we go. There we go. So I think we've established that you've got a very interesting career. You've had many jobs, wear many hats. Um, Turbans. <laughs> Turbans. Yes. <laughs> during COVID, you had a, a major pivot <clears throat> in your business. Um, and we touched upon publishing right at the start. Tell me about the publishing side of Natural. Well, it was interesting. Um, our first real proper pivot, our first COVID happened back in 2008. Okay. And, and, and what happened there was, so we were, we were moving along quite nicely as a record company, selling CDs and cassettes, and a thing called a mobile phone came along. And a certain Mr. Jobs decided that through the phone you could buy your tracks anytime, anywhere, any place, and you could pick and choose what you wanted. And that, of course, was our first disruption. And what that actually meant, that was fundamental because it actually questioned our entire business model. So we're now saying actually people don't want CDs and they don't want to go to shops between nine and five. Um, they want to on their mobile phone. They don't need a device to play it through. They don't need a power socket to put it through. That was a fundamental change. 
And that was probably our first proper crisis. Um, and then, of course, um, when COVID came, it wasn't as much of a crisis because all we were doing in COVID, we'd moved into events by this time. And uh, so we pivoted really from music to events back in 2008. That was our first real hardcore test on, on the leg legitimacy of our business model. So when COVID came along, we saw that as more of a pause button as opposed to a complete restructure. Now, a lot of businesses had to restructure big time. So what we knew was that we were hoping that events would come back quite quick, but we knew we weren't sure. So really, we were putting a pause button. We weren't questioning the model, in other words, face-to-face -face, uh, events, which we were questioning with the digital because people just no longer wanted to buy physical products. We knew people always would want to meet face-to-face, -face, but it was a question of when. So we had a branding issue now. It wasn't a financial issue. For some people it was, you know, how do we survive? Uh, we were okay financially. Our problem was a branding challenge. Our problem was a branding challenge. And the challenge was, if we're shut for say three to four years as a business from an events perspective, when we came back, whenever that would be, would people still see us as relevant? Or would we be starting again? And so we, so we had to ask, what can we do in that, in that interim period in terms of keeping our brand alive? Here's a bit of advice. When you're in good times, always come up with ideas that you'd like to do, but maybe don't have the time. Because when you're under distress, you make the wrong decisions and you do it for the wrong reasons. So during the good times, Narendra and I always thought, wouldn't it be nice, and here's my academics, wouldn't it be nice to have a magazine one day? Uh, and of course, you, you know, so we used to draw up a list of all the things we'd like to do. Quite a lot of them were event related. Um, and then quite a few of them were non like like the magazine. And we wanted to do the magazine then, or we were thinking about it, because we thought it would just add to our, what we call the ecosystem. Because we didn't have time. Um, so things don't happen for a number of reasons. One, you don't have time. You don't have the resource, in other words, the skill set. Or you don't have the financial result. And as as well, we're so busy with the events, we don't really have time. Guess what we had when COVID came along? Plenty of time, both to play badminton in the garden <laughs> and to suddenly draw up that list of ideas. Remember the list of ideas we'd always thought about? So now we had in front of us a list of ideas that we'd thought about in the good times. We weren't now suddenly trying to come up with a list of ideas at the wrong time because you can make decisions at the wrong. So my advice to people is when you're doing okay, always think about, remember stress testing, always think if something goes wrong, what could we do? and draw up those list of initiatives now and continue to visit them. So, COVID came uh, March 23rd, 2020, I won't forget the date. Uh, we were all told unceremoniously, stay at home. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, as with the majority of the population, you dismissed it as something about two, three weeks and we'll be rock and rolling. Uh, so by the time we came to end of April, we said, oops, oops, this is looking a lot more long-term. Remember, no vaccines, no nothing. And then we said, well, how do we stay relevant now from a branding perspective? Let's pull that list of ideas we used to have every month. Out came the list and the magazine was sitting there right in front of us. What we didn't have uh, was, a, was a concept or a design or what it looked like. And then um, I already happened to read the Harvard Business Review, the Entrepreneur Inc., Bloomberg, The Economy. So I had a good idea what was happening in the magazine market because I like reading. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, of course, we ordered all the hard copies, so we touched the touched to see what the competition was doing, looked at the content, so we had a rough idea where to position the product. It also meant if we got the product right, it gave us an excuse to stay in touch with people like Stacy and Matt and all the other people we knew, rather than just ringing up and saying, well, we're short, how are you? But now <laughs> we were able to engage with people. Um, and then so Narinda came up with the concept of the business influencer, and that came about because at our events, people, when we say to people, why, why did you come to our events? And Stacey, most people said, well, it's actually the people in the room, the influencers in the room, influence business, that's where the title came. Then it was a question of positioning. Um, most magazines were either free uh, or charging nominal. Well, we went the other way. We started charging £10 and made it the most expensive product you could ever get hold of. So we went completely the direction. Uh, most, most were digital only. We went physical and digital. So it meant that, um, meant that people who don't have time to check digitally, when this pops into their letterbox, they're going to remember it. And it makes a thud as well when it hits the floor, by the way. A thud, <laughs> and it makes a thud. So, um, so that was the concept. So off we went. Uh, printer said, you're, you're paying far too much for this. Why don't we reduce the quality? We said, no. We want it to be expensive because it sat in with our events, which we tried to place uh, top end. Um, and thankfully, the content was good because we, we talk about the same things at our events. So an ecosystem started to build. Uh, like yourselves, we now do a podcast as well. So it means you can now listen about music by going into the podcast. You can watch uh, about business by um, watching it. So you can listen to business through the podcast. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, you can read about it through the business influencer, either physically or digitally. And if you're face-to-face, -face, come to our events and you can still learn. So we touched all the human senses uh, through the magazine. And it's been well-received in America. We're just now trying to get the deals done. Uh, hopefully it'll be in all the... Well, we've done the deal. We haven't signed it off. It'll be in all the airlines as a download. Um, we're now testing, back to testing. We're now testing a few lounges out. And I think next year by February, when, fingers crossed, we're properly back to normal, they will look at proper distribution through WH Smiths and people like that. Uh, yeah, so that happened, the magazine happened purely because of an unanticipated event, but which we had planned for, if that makes sense, because we had a list of things we could move. And it gave us something to shout about. It enabled us to feature brilliant businesses like yourselves. And what's really interesting is, at our events, they tend to be populated by people with good money and have done well, millionaires, but this took us into the billionaire space. Yeah. And people who are billionaires now were talking to us and we've got some of them lined up for our keynote speaker. We just did one on Friday with Dinesh, um, a guy who built a billion pound business. One of the things that I most admire about you is that you can connect with um, children um, people who are learning, so they may not have had disadvantaged backgrounds, they may not have had the same um, abilities that uh, you, I, or any of our friends may have had. But you can also connect with people who are like Dinesh and have lost in excess of 700 million. Is that easy for you? I think people are people. And, and, and I think as long as you treat people as people and you don't put barriers or um, things against them, then I think it's quite easy to talk to people. Uh, obviously, certain people are triggered by certain things, depending on who they are. 
Uh, my lieutenancy role means I meet people from all kinds of backgrounds, charities and all kinds of backgrounds. My business connection with the events meets I meet some real high achievers. And I think it's helped. Uh, one, that I did okay with my global music scene. I think that helps. It brings a bit of credibility. So I'm not somebody just completely off the street. So I, I can talk about global business. Um, sitting on the LEP, which I did know at the time, sitting on the LEP and sitting on some of these strategic boards gives you that credibility as well because you've talked on strategic issues around the community you operate in. And I just think in life, you know, everybody's the same. Treat them all the same. You shouldn't treat people any different depending on how much money they've got in the bank or what background they come from. And if you're open and transparent and treat everybody the same, then they'll treat you as well. And so respect everyone you meet. Because guess what? They'll respect you. But you've got to start first. Yeah, you've got to respect them. Then they'll respect you back. Fantastic. I think that's a really strong message actually to finish on. So. Ninda, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners are going to be really intrigued by this story. Um, so thank you. Really appreciate it. I'm going to leave one last comment. Um, if somebody says to you, honestly, don't dream, tell them where to go. <laughs> <laughs>